That was Consortium Piece 20 by Hilliard Group, music from the court of Henry VII. And this is the first podcast of our quarter, The Shape of Tudor England, History 155 at UC Riverside. Did you ever wonder where the name Penguin came from? Well, let me tell you. It was a name given to most catchable and edible birds by Welsh members of English ships. And in particular, it likely comes from a secret voyage of Sir Francis Drake, or the Drac, as the Spanish knew him, from the circumnavigation of the globe in the late 1570s and 1580. Penguin is, in short, Welsh for white shirt as the curious little birds appeared to early moderns to be wearing white shirts themselves. Penguin was thus one of the ways in which the people of Tudor England imprinted their ideas on the world. But there were, of course, many other ways. In this course, we will explore some of them, from exploration to the language of Shakespeare, from Henry VIII's break with Rome to the Via Media, or middle path, of Elizabethan Protestantism. But before we get there, let me start by introducing myself. I'm Jordan, and this is going to be our classroom for the next 10 weeks. My background is in the subject of early modern history, and early modern England in particular. More specifically yet, it is London. I study the city, as contemporaries knew it, and in particular in terms of its inhabitants, in terms of their views, their political outlooks, the sermons that they both gave and listened to, and their engagement with contemporary politics. And this is a course on Tudor England, on the period ranging from 1485 to 1590s, 1603, a time that was clearly not medieval, but one that was also most certainly not modern. It was rather early modern. It is early modern England, as we know it. In It was in part familiar, but decidedly also not familiar, but a time when many of the things that we know today were in a nascent or early state. To understand this course and our subject, I want to employ the coast of England paradox. If you were to measure the coast of the United Kingdom on a map, it would stretch some 7,723 miles. If, however, you were to zoom in and measure the coast in a more precise manner, closer to the shore and in a way that accounted for the coves, nooks, crannies, and other varied spaces of the coast, or the jagged cliffs of Cornwall, say, the length of the coast would grow. It would grow to almost an infinite length, depending on how close you got, on how precise your measurement became. As you zoomed in yet further and further, from mile to yard, to foot, to inch, to millimeter, and so on, the coast would stretch well past the 7,723 mark, and instead become something much longer, if also more precise. English history, to adapt this paradox as a metaphor, is much the same. It is both long, on the one hand, and short, Attention to detail opens up yet more detail, making matters extend to levels of incredible complexity in terms of causal contingency and blossoming narrative structure that attempts to trace that complexity. 
We, in this introductory class, will find as much to be true of our subject. The tutors in this class, and from the period of 1485 to 1603, look much like a map. And our map, for an introduction, will be taking the mile marker, the 7,723 mile marker if we keep with the coast. But we will be mapping, in other words, Tudor England in its most cursory way, but in a way that should allow you to know the lay of the land rather clearly. We will encounter our fair share of kings and queens, from Henry VII to Henry VIII, from Edward VI to Mary Tudor, and on to Elizabeth and her successor, James VI and I, the sixth of his native Scotland and the first of his name for England. But with this class, you will also get the opportunity to measure the nation much closer. A paper project will see you reading our course text, Susan Brigden's New Worlds, Lost Worlds, an excellent introduction to our subject. But it will also see you choosing between course themes and reading a second monograph. You will thus read two books for History 155, enough to make you an armchair expert in at least one subject. The subsequent paper of eight to ten pages will be based on your analysis of both books, then, of Brigden on the one hand, and of another from the list provided in the syllabus, with recommendations by subject as the other. Additionally, if you find a book that you're interested in, something different, please bring it to my attention, and with any luck we can look it over and approve it, so you can actually get into any number of specific subjects that are outside of our chosen themes, but will naturally, I think, intersect with them. The themes are as follows. We have society, we have religion, and we have monarchy. Each of these subjects, as you can see from the course syllabus on iLearn, has four to five book recommendations. What you will need to do is read Brigden and any and all weekly posted primary or secondary sources, and in turn then read your chosen additional book. Between these and the podcast, you will get to a point where you can write your individual papers with a thesis constructed by you a thesis that deals with one of the three subjects, society, religion, or monarchy. But we'll have more on this soon. For now, let's talk briefly about the course format. Our weeks will consist of two main things. First will be a weekly podcast, or podcast for me, like this one you're listening to now. This will usually include lectures of some 15 to 20 minutes on our weekly subjects. You'll have the opportunity to download this podcast lecture by Tuesday most of the time. And with any luck, you'll have a chance to listen to it by Thursday. And Thursday is the second part of this course format. On Thursdays, we will have Zoom meetings during what would be our normal class hours, ranging between 12.30 and 1.50. Our class of 50 will be divided into two groups that will meet approximately for 30 to 40 minutes each. Each session will have me present for discussion, an opportunity, a chance to ask questions, to discuss lecture, or of course to discuss other things, as there are many things to discuss at the moment. So that's about it to start. We will have weekly podcast lectures and structured Zoom meetings. And this will all take some time to get used to, I know. I, for one, am not used to 
podcasting or uh, recording my voice. That's uh, something somewhat unnatural feeling to me, but I'm sure we'll all get used to it, myself included. Other smaller points. Aside from the research paper, you will be assessed based on short weekly responses to linked sources. These might range from listening to contemporary music, to viewing movies, or indeed combing over digitized primary sources, like Fox's Book of Martyrs. You will not be tested in this class. You will not be tested. The times don't call for it. Rather, it'll be your job to read, write, listen, and engage to take this time of quarantine for many of us to explore the many vetted sources we now have access to online. And that gets me to grades, that most concerning of issues, especially now. I have every intention of giving you all top grades. Showing up and being engaged should see you through to a B. Doing a bit more and writing a solid paper will get you an A. These are not normal times. And I'm reminded daily of the culture of early modern England, and in particular of the contemporary familiarity with memento moris, basically monuments or reminders of death. The plague, which remained an aspect of annual life well after the 14th century, and which would sometimes strike on a yearly basis, or sometimes biannually, it really depended, kept many in early modern society closer to and in many cases also painfully aware of, death. This familiarity manifested in art and music that celebrated death, perhaps not unlike and somewhat analogous to our modern Dia de Muertos. We will see much more of this soon. In some ways, our online class will be better than a normal course. I will not be asking you in person to detail Henry VIII's separation with Rome, But you will, in time, hopefully know why Henry chose to separate, how his position changed over over time, who suffered and benefited as a result, and why, ostensibly at least, he claimed the move to benefit the people of England as a whole. We should, in other words, not have trouble learning, and our removal from a formal classroom setting will see us all exploring in greater depth the vast offerings of institutions from around the world. These are, of course many in number, but we will engage with some of the most important, including those in the UK, such as the Victorian Albert, the V&A as it's known, the British Library, the British Museum, the Museum of London, and those in the US, the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, DC, and the Huntington Library, much closer to us in California and San Marino. As is the case with an online course, or any course for that matter, you will reap what you sow you will benefit to the extent that you put forth effort. I am and will be accessible throughout the quarter. You can reach me via email at jdown001 at ucr.edu. This is in the syllabus. Or by phone. I don't mind taking calls. I'm at 805-453-0655. Please call during reasonable hours. I'm up an alarming amount of the night due to two small children, but do try not to ring too late. I'll be happy to answer calls or texts. The other thing is our course Instagram, the Riverside Tutor. Jump on and check my feed, which will post stories, information, and other things about myriad aspects of Tudor England. And I think that about squares us away for now. 
Please don't hesitate to message and let's plan for a first Zoom meeting this Thursday. I'll post links to podcasts as they become available. And don't panic if you don't see one. It'll be coming. Flexibility and forgiveness will get us through these strange times. And on to our next lecture, which will be available soon, of Graves and Dynasties on the rise of Henry Tudor, Henry VII. Thanks. Talk to you soon. That was 15th century music in Hydraulis by the Hilliard Ensemble. And here we are again. This is our second podcast for History 155, titled Of Graves and Dynasties. But before we get started, I wanted to note a few things about Tudor England. The United Kingdom, the UK, or Great Britain, as so often called, is, of course, a series of islands, an archipelago. The United Kingdom is made of England in the south, of Wales to the west, and of Scotland to the north, but it also includes Northern Ireland. And Great Britain, we should note then, of course did not exist until the early 18th century. Rather, it came into being two centuries after the period we're looking at here, after the end of that period, and in particular with the Acts of Union of 1707. The modern Union Jack flag would come nearly a century later, in 1801, when the three flags based on the patron saints of England, Scotland, and Ireland were joined, of St. George's Cross, a red cross on white for England, of St. Andrew's Psalter, a diagonal on blue for Scotland, and of St. Patrick's Psalter, a diagonal of red on white. For years, for centuries in fact, the, island, the islands of the archipelago have struggled with regional identity, with national independence, pursuit of national independence, and indeed with how to manage foreign monarchical rule, especially in terms of our period, of rule that was more often than not imposed from the south, from the seat of English government, from Westminster. England had, since the late 13th century reign of Edward I, Edward Longshanks held a firm grip on its neighbors, on Wales, where most of the nation's castles still exist to this day, and indeed Scotland. Longshanks, in fact, was so brutal with Scotland that he had gained the title of Scotus Maleficarum, of Hammer of the Scots. It was Edward Longshanks who would kill the nationalist William Wallace the six-foot-three Scot who once killed an Englishman with a rock for attempting to steal his trout. Edward's successor, his son, Edward II, did little to advance England's dominion. But Edward's grandson, Edward III, did, turning attention away from Scotland and Wales and instead onto conquest in France, to an attempt to claim old French lands and French 
holdings on the crown of Scotland. Scotland, with its own king and its own identity, moreover, will feature often in this course, and especially up to 1603, with the arrival in England of James VI of Scotland and I of England. Our focus here will be England, and the southern part of the main island of the archipelago in particular. And England consisted of towns, of counties, of market cities, of shires. Some of the larger cities with thousands of inhabitants, but seldom more than 10,000, such as York to the north, the seat of the bishopric of York. And there were others, like Coventry in the West Midlands, a town that was enormous and circled with its own medieval wall and persisted into the early modern period, of Norwich in the east, in East Anglia, and of Bristol in the southwest. By far the largest was, of course, London, the capital with a population of nearly 50,000 in 1500, a population that would grow significantly over the course of the 16th century, too. We must, in some regards, divorce our minds from the present world to understand Tudor England, as it was an intensely hierarchical society. It was intensely hierarchical. It was an ordered world that saw itself from the top down, a monarchy ruled by a monarch, by a king, which contemporaries preferred, or a queen, which was less desirable to early moderns, but was often, as we will see, capable, if not more capable, than a man. Beneath monarchs were the nobility and the landed gentry, and they are key to understanding how England operated. Landed is the operative word here when we're looking at the gentry, because land is what made the gentry. Land is what provided rents, and rents in turn provided what was needed to make it at court in terms of the money to practice martial arts, to uh, persist with patronage, and to seek advancement at court. Nobility and titles which were hereditary went something like this, and they were all known hierarchically again. Dukes were above marquises, who were above earls, who were above viscounts, who were above barons. Below these were baronets, knights, and dames, and below these were freeholders who freely held land and estates. Below these were tenants, those who rented and worked. The vast majority of the nation was comprised of working tenants, tied to their land and tied to seasons for their labor. This model, as we shall see in our next lecture, was mirrored by the hierarchy of the church. But suffice it for now to know that England was a deeply religious society. Generally, this hierarchical system worked without a hitch. Kings and queens maintained a court, a court in which nobles and the landed gentry attended and sometimes followed. And courts moved throughout the year, with monarchs spending time at the palaces of Whitehall, but sometimes moving on to other estates, traveling from town to town, or more often from palace to palace, up the River Thames to Hampton Court, or maybe Richmond Palace, or maybe down rivers towards Greenwich, a palace where Henry VIII kept his foundries for building royal arms and ships. Monarchs moved because it was, on the one hand, entertaining, 
because it reinforced their claims to rule. It allowed them to present themselves to their people. But on the other hand, and more than anything, it was also because London got hot in the summer, and London smelled of urine and waste, the urine and waste that its inhabitants threw out of their windows to dispose of. The system of a peripatetic court worked fine, that is, until it became time for war, or a time of another pressing national emergency or matter. Wars were expensive, and in order to bankroll them, monarchs often called parliaments. And early modern parliaments were ad hoc institutions, locally elected bodies called upon by the monarch who hoped to be awarded additional taxes in times of need. When called, parliaments were expected to grant money to the king or queen, and the king or queen in exchange was expected to hear concerns, the concerns of elected members of their realm, what was called a redress of grievances, and members of parliament elected throughout the nation were known as knights of the shire. So you would have knights of the shire presenting up for a redress of grievances to a monarch in the hope that the exchange would lead to the awarding of additional money, uh, additional taxes. But to give you a sense of how parliaments work, Elizabeth I, for instance, called only 13 parliaments during her 44-year reign. She listened to their advice at her will and by her choosing. Government was otherwise comprised of courts, and in particular of a court of quarter sessions that would roam the kingdom, as its name implies quarterly, to deal with local matters of law. There were other regional courts, courts in Star Chamber, which remained in Westminster. There were many courts, but the quarter sessions were the most important. And government was managed primarily by local municipal bodies in counties and towns and in cities. In Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire and Kent and Yorkshire, for instance, there was a county administration, but towns had their own government. London, for instance, had its own common council, a court of aldermen and sheriffs, and its annually elected Lord Mayor. These together comprised a corporation, corporal body, a body. The seat of the nation was held near to London, as it is today, up the River Thames in Westminster. And Parliament, when it was called, met in Westminster. And Parliament, more than its elected House of Commons, included a House of Lords. It was a bicameral institution and remains as much today. It was the House of Commons, capital C, and House of Lords, capital L. The Lords were, as the title implies, part of the gentry, the landed nobility of England. And joining them in the House of Lords were also bishops, the heads of episcopal seats. Until the Houses of Parliament burned down in the early 19th century, the Commons met in St. Stephen's Chapel, a cramped church room floor that is part of the Westminster complex still today. As a little aside, I was fortunate enough about 20 years ago when I worked as an intern in the Houses of Parliament to enter the houses through St. Stephen's Chapel Gate. It was a really nice place to work for a few months. But let's move past institutions for now. It's something we'll address in different ways and at different times. 
And I will often remind you that Parliament was not simply the standing government, as people often think, but rather that it was at this time called upon by monarchs, an ad hoc institution that would, of course, change over time. Okay, let's move on to the start of the Tudor dynasty. At the time of Henry Tudor's, soon to be Henry VII's arrival, England was already deep into a process of enclosure, of the consolidation of arable or farmable lands that were increasingly owned by single wealthy farmers, and often in turn converted into pasture for sheep farming, a process that generated English wool which could be sold throughout Europe. Did you ever wonder why blue jeans were called blue jeans? They were a finished project, product that originated in Genoa, Jean Genoa, Italy, and became an important alternative to the expensive wool of Britain and other low countries. Anyways, cloth trade, that's for another class. Enclosure was a problem that was growing, and it was a matter that affected the English population. What it did was leave many young men seeking employment where fields could not be tilled. This in part helped to supply the men-at-arms needed for the Wars of the Roses that followed after nearly 80 years of war between England and France. Suffice it to say, in the wake of numerous marriage alliances and divisions, England saw itself contending with three decades of bloody civil war between 1455 and 1485 of the claims of England's Plantagenet line divided between the houses of York and the houses of Lancaster. This generated some of the most violent and bloody battles in English history. Towton, 1461, Tewkesbury, 1471, and finally where we will pick up today at Bosworth Field in 1485. Bosworth saw two claimants to the throne meet on the field of battle in Leicestershire, and it would mark the end of the Wars of the Roses. Richard III of the House of York had come to the throne only a few years earlier in 1483. His claim came by way of his family line, and he was at one time regent, appointed by his brother, King Edward IV, to protect Edward IV's young sons, the assumption being that his eldest son, Edward V, would be crowned upon his father's death. And Edward IV did, of course, die. He had a rather nasty habit of eating excessively and then purging himself so that he could eat more. This was one of the troubles that caught up to him finally in April 1483. But Richard apparently had other plans. He soon named both of the young princes as illegitimate, claiming that their blood had been polluted by other lines and had them sent to the Tower of London. They vanished from there soon after, but more on that in a moment. If not necessarily the villainous Richard III of William Shakespeare's plays, King Richard was most certainly a controversial figure. He had by many accounts usurped the throne of England, and if contemporary rumor is to be believed, he had perhaps even murdered his brother's sons to take the throne for himself. But more important than rumor was the fact that Richard had alienated England's ruling class by installing his own Yorkist supporters in positions of power in the South. He thus effectively angered some of the most important and powerful magnates of the nation, a matter that distanced the support of the nobility and gentry and which helped to bolster the claims of his rivals, 
and namely that of young Henry Tudor. Exiled in Brittany, many of Richard's opponents joined with Henry Tudor. And Henry held his claim to the throne by way of matrilineal descent through Owen Ap Tider of Wales, and more recently by way of his uncle, Jasper Tudor. As Richard sank in popularity, Henry soared. Not only did disenfranchisement disenfranchised Englishmen leave England to join a shadow court in Brittany, but many swore oaths of allegiance that they would help Henry to win the throne of England. And this he set off to do, crossing the English Channel with French troops and exiled supporters in 1485. And he gained yet more support as he marched east, coming down from the rocky mountains of Wales to the Welsh marches, the rolling hills of England's west country, and on. And despite some thirty years of civil war, the English were more than happy to support a new king. The Battle of Bosworth Field was not large by contemporary standards, but it did see Richard defeated and Henry crowned on the field, not simply by the right of his ancestry and maternal claim of four generations, but for Henry now by right of conquest. Henry apparently did not fight in the battle himself, but was instead shielded throughout by his guard. Richard III, in a moment spying, spying Henry and seeing him up on a ridge, had charged furiously. He had killed two bannermen, if it is to be believed, and was finally pushed back towards a marsh where he was unhorsed, where his helmet came off, and where he uttered some famous lines but he was there, by all accounts, killed. And with his death, Henry Tudor, Earl of Richmond, became the single greatest landowner in England, and all at the relatively young age of 28. And as we've seen, land ownership meant rents, and rent meant wealth, and with this wealth, Henry hoped he would be able to found a dynasty, one that would be strong enough to ward off claimants, and any challengers to his own throne. And Henry would at first be celebrated, and this owed much to the opinions of those who surrounded him. He reached London not long after, and was crowned on the 30th of October, and swore an oath to the nation. His next act was to take a queen, and the queen he chose was ideal to the purpose of the moment. Elizabeth of York, Edward IV's relative. He had thus combined the houses of Lancaster and York, making the famous white and red roses of the House of Tudor, a signet that would serve as a lasting symbol, a, legit a legitimization of a new dynasty. But Henry was never completely secure. More than marry a daughter of the House of York, he was still concerned, and he arranged for the wedding of his chief supporter at Bosworth Field, the powerful Lord Stanley, to wed his mother, Margaret Buford, Countess of Richmond. Stanley was thus to be a member of his own family, and more than this was made Earl of Derby. Regional control went a similar way, with Henry's supporters elevated to take titles of their former Yorkist supporters of Richard III, thus John de Vere, Earl of Oxford rose in East Anglia, and likewise Lord Daubeny found his place in southwest towards Cornwall.
And so let's end today's talk with Henry Tudor on the throne, married to a queen that would see the houses of York and Lancaster reunited. But before we do, I want to say a few last things briefly. And what of those young princes, the children of Edward IV, the rightful Yorkist heirs to the throne of England, who were all of twelve and nine years old? The likely remains of the two were discovered under the stairs in a passageway in the tower in 1674, at which time then King Charles II had them exhumed and buried in Westminster Abbey. They remain there and have not been confirmed to be the children of Edward IV. And what then of Richard, whose body went missing from the Battle of Bosworth Field? Well, we now know that too, and in this case with far more certainty. When I was a graduate student in England uh, long ago now, in 2012, an article about Tudor England made the front page news. Bones were unearthed in a car park in Leicester, and what was once the nave of Greyfriars Friary. A living ancestor, Michael Ibsen, Richard III's nephew, 16 times removed, gave his DNA, and it was determined that they were in fact the bones of Richard III, the last English king to die on the field of battle. He had had his scalp cut off, his face driven in with a dagger, and the side of his skull pierced with a sword. His body was then stripped and perhaps mutilated to be pulled away by a horse and lost. But it was then found again, in your lifetime and mine, in a simple car park, and it has since been buried. And so we have it the presumably murdered heirs of Edward IV, the exhumation of Richard, the end of the Yorkist line, and the crowning of Henry Tudor, or Ap Tider, if we follow his Welsh family line, a new king with a Yorkist queen and a symbolic marriage of the Lancastrian and Yorkist houses, the red and white roses, the cross-pollination that would make the Tudor rose. For now, our podcast ends, and we will explore how Henry VII intended to hold on to his ground, and how his efforts would provide the financial foundations for the Tudor dynasty next.